Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Crunch episode of the Mythos Manual podcast. I'm your producer and host, Leslie Wisniewski, sitting down per usual with our game master, Caller David. All I roll are 20s, yo. If that were true, the game would be much less interesting, and I think more characters would be dead. That might be true. <laughs> so jumping right in, these last two episodes really have us delving into not only the excavation site of Poema, but the surrounding jungle, and we're really getting to see those uh, the the exploration rules kind of in action. Right? Yeah, we've we're now actually playing with them. Yeah. So, is this a like a subsystem that you got from another gaming company, or is it one that you kind of just developed yourself? No, 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 no. no. This came right out of Ultimate Wilderness, which came out maybe a year or a year and a half ago. It's one of the last big like. Pathfinder first edition, like, hardcover books. Gotcha. Uh, and it was a book that focused primarily just on wilderness and, like, nature. It was kind of a big nature book. It had a lot of archetypes that were nature-themed, and it included a bunch of new ideas for, like, that if you were going to run a game that took place outside. from And a lot of campaigns do spend a lot of time outside. So, you know, it made sense. And it was one I picked up a while ago. Uh, what this offered is an alternative to... A different way of exploration of an of an area. Can you can you talk a little bit about some more standard ways that the tabletop community has handled exploring big areas in the past? Well, there's a million different ways you can kind of come at it. This one was maybe the most like gamified way of doing it, where I was able to kind of create a resource that can be spent to find more places. Mm-hmm. Is kind of maybe the it worked really well for the system I I'm doing because everything is so time is specific mm-hmm. i like the idea of like they have to earn a certain amount of these points and then they can spend those points to per- essentially you know quote unquote purchase new places that right. then unlocks more places in the jungle for them to explore and just to recap so i want to make sure i understand the exploration rules as they stand are the characters can make either a survival or a perception check there can be like a, a primary person doing those checks that can be aided by others to give them bonuses. Mm-hmm. And if those checks do well, they receive a degree of points towards exploring the area. And then later on in the game, if they want to try and find something, they can cash in or be willing to spend up to X amount of points. Is that correct? That's exactly right. Okay, great. I just want to make sure that I have it. So I know in the past, we in our home brews have used hex maps and things of that nature. And you, there's definitely something I think rewarding about filling in a big old hex map and yeah. getting to really explore the area and feel like you know it. Besides this, besides the fact that this is a podcast and not necessarily a visual medium, what was your reasoning for avoiding the standard hex map route? I've done hex map campaigns before a lot. Like it's a recurring thing. I've used them over and over in a lot of campaigns and they're really fun. They're, you're right. There is something really rewarding about putting in a hex map in front of people. And then people, it, it turns like the terrain almost into a little dungeon mm-hmm. where you can kind of quantify like, oh, this he- we've been to this hex. We'll go to the hex next to it. We've been to this hex. We'll go to the hex next to it. And maybe we're you know, learning things along the way. But you can, like, look at a map and you have an understanding at least of, like, distance, space between places. Uh, and it helps really, like, give you a good visual of, like, what the world you're looking at is kind of looking like. And it gives kind of... And it helps you, I think, feel a little bit more secure. The more of the map you filled out, the better you feel about the place, right? Right. I know that, like, the the castle is three hexes away. I know that the friendly village is like four hexes away. It it gives you a sense of 
landmarks and awareness, I guess, of your surroundings. Right. Yeah. And I think, and, and they're really effective. Like they're, they're, they're really effective and they're, they're fun because people like filling out like hex maps. I like making little drawings on them. Yeah. I think Chris even brings that up earlier that she thought something about, about making little, little stick figures. Little stick figures is because <laughs> she would just fill out the hex maps with like whatever you guys like actually found in the hex maps. Uh-huh. Um, and they're fun because you can like plant like, you know, you plant little seeds of adventure into specific little hexes or something like that. You can do random encounters that way as well. Um, and like there's something very appealing to hex maps. I didn't want to do that because I've done it before and I wanted to this campaign to be a lot of like new ideas and different approaches to things. Mm-hmm. And I and I, I, to kind of go with the point that hex maps can sometimes make you feel safe and hex maps give you a sense of like you've explored the whole area. You, you're done now. And I wanted the jungle to feel so condensed and so big, but also so hard to travel through because it's a jungle, right? Like it, it'd be so easy to miss something if it was like, yeah. approached in a realistic way, right? Yeah. Like you could just be like, you know, hex maps are meant to, I think like, in general, it's like 12-mile radius or something like that. It's like each hex in okay. general. And, you know, but if you're in a jungle, like, exploring a 12-mile radius is an insane amount of time. Like, that would take so long to do. And, like, you'd be certain to miss something if there was, like, you know, one squat little building in the middle of that. Like, what are the odds you'd ever find it? Right. That's true. So it, it almost, like, it leaves the players kind of adrift in a way. The jungle is always going to be this unknowable nebulous thing there could always exactly there could always be more to find i like the idea also of it the way the system kind of works is that it lets the players there's a bit of narrative that they can get to kind of take hold in they go searching for something and they're looking out for it and they accumulated a certain amount of points now they say they want to spend those points because they want to find this specific place that they've been looking for and they you know based on how many points that they've acquired and want to spend versus like you know, the point value of an of a, any given location. Right. Each of the locations have a different point value based on like how hard they are to find. Right. I guess like here's a question that I have. So are the points that you get whenever you are making these roles for these explorations, are those points supposed to represent like just your awareness of the area that you've just put in the time? Like are you supposed to have a keener eye? I guess like is there a one-to-one of what these points are supposed to represent? Is it just your character's exp- like uh, experience in this area? They're just becoming more familiar? Or is it just purely, there is no one-to-one, it's just a point system. If you do well on the rolls, you accumulate these points. I go out, I make a roll to get these points, whether it's perception or survival. Now, if I do well, what does that equate to in the world of the game? Does that just mean that- Oh, like, okay, yeah, you, no. Okay, explain explain it to me because okay. I guess I'm I'm not understanding it. I'm trying to find a one to one. Is there just there's not? not one? No, it's not. It's more it's more ambiguous than that. It is it is you went out exploring. You've learned more about the area. You've explored maybe a new part of the jungle you haven't been to. You saw different things. You've learned more landmarks. It's a nebulous idea. Like these points aren't don't represent a one to one thing. It's more narrative based than that. It's just that we've. You know, you, you've acquired this, uh, you know, a, a bunch of points and then you choose to go and spend them, quote unquote, like purchase a new location. Right. And, and you have to have had heard about those locations already in order to have purchased them. Oh, okay. So it's kind of like if you're playing a video game and you run into a villager and they're like, I lost my sword at this cave. Well, if you could find this cave, would you find it for me? 
uh, and then that location pops up on your map because now you're aware of it? Is it kind of like that? That's more similar, except like the location wouldn't pop up on the map. You just like now have the option to like look for that location. Got it. Okay. So I guess in a way it's interesting too because the players get to determine how many points they're willing to spend to find a location. So a location could be, let's say, a two-point difficulty. But if they're in a crunch for whatever reason, they're like, we'll spend eight points for, for this to find this hut. And it's like right on the other side of that tree. Then all those points are gone, right? As they are written in the rule book, then yes, those points are all gone. I don't know if I'm always going to play it that way because it's a little it's a little draconian. It depends on how the game kind of goes. I might be a little bit more flexible on that kind of rule. Do you think that flexibility as someone who is running a game is pivotal to a game being successful or do you think it just comes down to like to play styles do people do some people do some parties i should say enjoy having a more like strict ruling on things right maybe i've never had a group that's like loves a really strict ruling i think there's definitely something to be said for oh this was super hard and i did it and i did it the right way but I think there's also something to be said for like game masters rewarding players for like taking risks or right. It should always be fun. If it doesn't yeah. feel fun, then it, it's not working. Right. It should be fun and challenging. Right. right? Exactly. You want to have that a nice mix. I feel like with this because there, I have them on a clock. Mm-hmm. I think if I didn't have them on a clock, right, and there was a little bit more free form, like they had like unlimited amount of days to explore this place at their leisure. Right. Maybe I would be a little bit more like, yeah, like if you spend all your points, you spend all your points, right? Or like, yeah. if you miss something, you miss something huge. But this, like there's a bit of a crunch, there's a bit of a clock, and I don't want them to get bogged down making like kind of like... Like, it's fun to do these kinds of checks, and, like, I want them to be keeping, like, exploring the jungle as, like, a thing they have to be kind of doing all the time, but they want to learn more about it. But I don't want it to also feel punishing. Yeah, you don't want to be sacrificing the story and the emotional catharsis. Right, for for them just to make, like, little checks, like, every every single day. Right, I mean, if, if it was all just came down to rolling dice, that's all we would do. Right. Okay, great. Well, getting away from exploring jungles, let's talk about exploring the heart. I feel like uh, in this most recent episode, we had the opportunity to get to know Shayaka a lot better. And he, in turn, kind of forces the PCs to reveal more about their characters. I think uh, I think it's Kafka that has the line of like, oh, I forgot this guy's kind of churchy because mm-hmm. they had to essentially share moments of, of faith, I think. And uh, I just find that really fascinating. I think people, I, I think that in, in so many role play games, whether you're playing pathfinder or fifth edition there's almost always some deity system in place there's always some type of like religious parallel that characters are given the option to latch onto. um let's talk about that a little bit because you do have a religious npc and it feels like as the deeper we get into this jungle there's definitely some religious ideologies at play Okay, I mean, like, religion can matter. Well, that's a thing, because, like, in fantasy role-playing games, you know, the fact that there are, quote-unquote, gods is a given. Like, gods can give you magic. Some settings, like, there's the Eberron setting, where it's a little bit more like, are they real? Like, maybe. They're not as, like, involved. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But in general, the, the the given situation is always that the gods are real, and they play a, an almost everyday kind of role in the lives of their worshippers, especially ones they grant magic to. Like uh, like paladins or clerics. Yeah, exactly. Which and like Shaq is an inquisitor, so he gets his he gets his 
you know, divine ability from an actual god, like a god bestows it upon him. That's so interesting because I always think of Shayaka as a cleric or a priest. I never think about him as an inquisitor. Yeah, he is. His class-wise is inquisitor. But inquisitor is always, you know, as written by Pathfinder, you know, they're essentially the rogue cleric build concept. Okay. And Shayaka, I liked, I didn't want to do him as a straight cleric. I liked the idea of him being a little bit more, he's a, to me, he was more of an adventurer before this, like he was out and doing, traveling the world. So I think he's a little bit more, he's less bookish and a little less, you know. He, he's he, down to clown. He, yeah, he wouldn't like run a church necessarily, but like he would work for one for a while. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. I think it's interesting, too, because there are definitely players that decide to, like, really lean into uh, characters of faith, and there are also players who just go completely the opposite direction. Right, who just never would give it a second thought. You can also, what's interesting is to also play characters who are very religious, but don't have a class that then reflects how religious they are. You know, to play a very religious fighter is an interesting experience. You're not a paladin, but maybe you still are devoted to a god. Yeah, and like you can play with that, and there's actually and like Pathfinder and other systems like will can maybe even reward that depending on the game. I think it also just get, can give your character a sense of direction and a sense of conflict, right? Yeah, I think that I mean in our world, if you're religious, you aren't necessarily a priest, you aren't right. necessarily a minister. Very it, true. It's just an aspect of who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, just like I don't know, I feel like sometimes we play our our characters a little too closely to their class. And maybe we're guilty in real life of playing ourselves a little too close to what we do. I know sometimes I get stuck in that kind of notion of like, I am the work that I'm doing. Uh, but characters can be built off of more things. In your experience as a, as a GM, do you see players making uh, character choices based on their characters' religions a lot? Or do you find that that is an underserved kind of choice? Oh, uh, I mean, it, it, that sort of thing is going to vary group to group. A lot in, in, in player to player, like how interesting you might find the religious aspect of any given world or scenario. Uh, like with this campaign, like I didn't sometimes sometimes for a homebrew campaign, I'll create a whole pantheon, and I don't love the idea that all like Pathfinder and D and D have both married themselves to the idea of like this very Greek gods kind of setup, right? Mm-hmm. Where there's like a god of water and a god of war and a god of whatever right Mm -hmm. and like they each have like a different thing and like their own kind of church and following and i don't love that i've never loved that because i feel like that doesn't really reflect how religion looks especially in the middle ages because every other role-playing games are often set in like a middle ages kind of feel right which then there weren't at least in western yeah yeah there weren't gods like that it was more like paganism and it was paganism versus like an organized religion versus like you know i.e catholicism Mm-hmm. And like the old gods versus the new and all that, right? And I feel and and it's more about like how the religion is organized and 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 you know religion is arguably good or evil, and that's kind of like a bigger question, and that, not one we're looking to answer here. But like no, we're looking, that, I, that's a little outside of our but, podcast but, pay grade, right? But what I w- what I wish games I think sometimes reflected better were like ch- the idea that like churches, you know, like you can worship a good aligned God, like probably, you know, as written, like the Christian, as written, like, you know, but like, you know, rules as written in biblically. the Bible, biblically, like, like for the most part, the Christian God seems, at least in the New Testament, seems like a like good aligned deity, right? Quote, but unquote, like yeah. his church is not always a good aligned institution. Right. I think that we can acknowledge that 
uh, the philosophies of religious organizations don't always manifest in the actions of their believers. Agreed. And I wish like our role playing games were better about that because I feel like, yeah, you know what I mean? Like it's always like it's like, oh, I'm a good cleric or I, I'm a cleric and I worship a good God. But like there's I don't know. I, I, it's one where the rules don't mesh with the narrative always very well, I find. It's a, it's a, it's something that's always kind of stuck in my side as like a problem with like how religion is portrayed in role playing games. Cause like it's hard to have like, oh, like the head of like the good aligned church is actually evil. Cause like without like a whole bunch of like dumb like workarounds, people would know right away, right? Yeah. Like, it, like he would lose his powers because his good aligned God would be like, you're no longer getting powers from me because you're right. evil. And I feel like so often looking at like stories of faith oftentimes those stories are about coming to faith or losing faith Mm -hmm. or doubting your faith and i think if every paladin lost their abilities anytime they doubted their right it's kind of frustrating it's hard to play with if like i'm gonna if i'm gonna lose all of my class abilities because like i'm trying to have an interesting role play exactly and also like I feel like if faith is the is like believing in something and then the gods are just like wide accepted real, then like it becomes a little bit more difficult to play with the concept of faith because it it's becomes less of a religion and more of a political ideology. It really no, you're like a hundred percent right. Like religions and religion and politics has a much more like closer connection in like these like kind of false worlds that they've created. Cause they, you're right. It's like, what kind of morals do you ascribe to? Well, here's a god for you. Oh, you like like free love and like art. Well, here's Shellen. You like, yeah. You like pain and suffering and like and <laughs> yeah. order. Then here's Zun Kuthan. Like, right. You know, right. So the, you're, yeah, you're onto something there, and and which is kind of boring in a way. Well, here's the interesting thing: is yeah. as far as I as far as I understand, um, in Pathfinder Two, one of their updated rules is that paladins are no longer required to be lawful good. Right. Yes. They've. They're kind of re. I think that's a thing in five e two, right? Right. Where paladins don't have to be lawful good. I'm not a hundred percent sure. I'm pretty sure. I'm not. Maybe I'm not. It's been a while since we've played a paladin in five e. Yeah. I, I know. Going forward, they're not even called paladins anymore. I think they're called champions. Oh, okay. Uh, and a champion, like, and uh, being a paladin is like a. Ch- you can now be a, a champion and what, oh, what's your big archetype or what your big move you pick is like, oh, I'm a champion paladin or I'm a champion. Uh, I forget the other names for them because I haven't got my two ebook yet. But uh, <laughs> like, like it's champion and then like you pick like a different kind of like header that goes with it. And then like what you could be like a chaotic good one, a lawful good one or a neutral good one. And each of them has like a kind of different tie into like whatever your code is. And it's a different take on like what that class should have always been. Well, it's interesting because I feel like in a way it's kind of dissolving the paladin class and just making it so that your character can be kind of churchy. Well, you're, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Paladins have always been presented and especially in the history of Dungeons and Dragons as like, you know, warriors of good and law and we're always, you know, always going to do the right thing kind of characters. And I think we're just moving past that into a new modern interpretation of that class, like being opening up what that can be. And it's sh- what they should always, always have just been is martial characters who are holy warriors for a god. Yeah. Right. That's all yeah. they ever needed to be. Yeah. And also, it, I don't know. I think it, geez, it lessens the pressure. Like, characters should be allowed to like be flawed and and have a degree of humanity yeah i would also say like you can be lawful good and you can still portray like a flawed paladin character and still be lawful good 
they, they, depending on who your GM is going to be, and like you can find fun ways and nuance in that. Some people might reward that, and some people might not. But like I would, I think that's like the more fun option is to like kind of play with that choice. Uh, in terms of Shayaka, uh, Shayaka is someone who is a good aligned character. I kind of did this. Like Shayaka is a, a good aligned character who worships a neutral aligned god. Mm-hmm. And so like like so his god is much more chaotic and a little bit more wily than Shayaka himself is. Shayaka mm-hmm. is a little bit more actually a button down kind of cleric of his own deity. <laughs> I feel like, though, Shayak is kind of punking everybody by only making them banana pancakes. I think he might be. That's a very good point. I think he does eat <laughs> other things. I think he's kind of like, he, he, he. They only <laughs> think, they all think I only eat bananas. Yeah. But I don't. He's a scamp. He is. A lovable scamp. Yeah, and I think, like, and, like, I kind of, I had a, I, early on, I had a kind of idea where Shaq would be drunk a lot, because that's a big part of, like, Sun oh. Wukong is, like, he's a god of, like, like drunken mischief. Okay. But I decided, like, to not do that with Shaq. To play against type. Right. I thought it'd be a little bit more interesting. Shaq was a little bit more, they described him as just kind of, like, a really cool youth group leader. <laughs> yeah. It was, like, you know, he'd just pull out his acoustic guitar and sing some songs to everybody. Oh, and I, what I, so and I, good. <laughs> yeah. And what I liked about, uh, it's part of, like, the system I'm trying to use of, like, getting all the characters to, like, meet the, and interact with the NPCs. I use Shayaka as an opportunity to help the characters role play out more of their own backstories. Like using those characters, like Shaco, like then, you know, wanted to know more about the characters and that forces the characters to kind of like look for new answers that they, what do they know about their character already? And then like, you know, bring that out. Like it's just more opportunities to bring more characterization uh, into the forefront of the story. Yeah. And when else would we have those opportunities just presented to us? It's not like we're wandering through the jungles with these characters as they're just having casual conversations. So often when, exactly. we're, when we're with them, things are happening. And I think having these strong NPCs to really demand that type of intimacy with our with our player characters, I've found to be really rewarding. It's good to, yeah, exactly right. Because it's good to have these kinds of moments of quiet downtime because that's where like the story starts to like really like, you know, boil, right? Mm-hmm. You need like all, the, you need all these interactions. You need all these like NPCs. You need all these relationships and stakes to matter. And they're not going to matter unless they've been processed a little bit. Yeah, 100%. Uh, there's a new coworker uh, at my job and I'm recommending a bunch of cartoons for him to watch. And my instinct was, oh, we'll just watch the Emmy-nominated uh, cartoons that that are there. And one of the episodes is uh, is a Steven Universe episode called Reunited. And I realized, oh, I can't recommend that to someone who's never seen Steven Universe because every emotional beat of that story is grounded in hours and hours upon character relationships that have been building where there were no stakes and it was just about those friendships and bonds. It was about Steven walking around his hometown, not asking questions about the lore. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, But that just goes to show that you you get to have, you get to, in a way, by having these these role play moments and by kind of gathering up as, as a game master your own kind of like points and exploration of these characters and their intimacies and their emotions, you get to kind of cash those in on finding um, and on discovering real emotional moments that you will get to have hopefully in the future. Trying to tie it back to the exploration. No, you're absolutely right. Wow. I feel really proud of myself for making that come right back around. Good job. Good job. (laughs) Thank you. I'm getting better at talking. Uh, Well, I feel like that's, that's pretty good for today. I'm super stoked to see, what secrets the jungle 
will reveal. Yeah, they got into the pyramid. So what's uh, what's going to be in this bronze pyramid, oh, you know? That's right. Suresh's brother is there. Oh, things are cooking. Things are heating up in the... In, Drama! In Poema. So I, I'm very... I'm very excited to see where everything's going to move. Yeah, I'm super stoked because I feel like you've been breadcrumbing a little bit. Uh, Suresh's past experience at Poema, like him and Ruth and his brother, they were there. Like a bunch of crap went down. They hid in the pyramid. And then question mark, question mark, question mark, profit. Like we don't really know what happened. And I think Suresh is in particular a very interesting NPC. And I'm very curious to see how he became who he is and what is this relationship with his with his brother? Thank you so much, as always, for sitting down with me. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We will see you next time on a Crunch episode. And in the meantime, good luck to all your roles. Stay crunchy, everybody. No, Thanks for tuning in to the Mythos Manual. Be sure to check us out on our socials at Mythos Manual or our website, mythosmanual.com. May all your roles be 20s.